what's going on, everybody? How's it hanging? How's it happening? You guys know what it is. This is Kevin from the Chord Progression Podcast, brought to you in Rocks or Rock and Metal Thrive. Happy last podcast of 2020, everybody. Yes, we're finally at the end of 2020, and this is the perfect episode to take you into 2021. We normally interview all the emerging rock and metal bands in the scene today, but we got an opportunity to interview a very prominent musician over the past 55 years in rock music, a former member of the band Chicago. I could not say no to it, and I am so glad I did this because this conversation was absolutely incredible. I got to talk to Bill Champlin, former member of Chicago, on his solo project, talk to him about his new album called Living for Love coming out in 2021, and his brand new single called Reason to Believe coming out on New Year's Day 2021. It has all the makings of a very classic Bill Champlin style album that you could imagine. And I can't believe this, but you guys get to listen to this whole entire thing. There are so many stories, so many different nuances about creating the art that is music that is in this podcast that is talked about. It is for everybody. Also, dad, please enjoy this one. So are you guys ready? Because I sure as hell am. So let's go. Yeah. Well, 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 ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, listeners of the Chord Progression Podcast, you know, usually I'm always talking to the emerging acts in hard rock, metal, heavy metal today, but I got an opportunity to do this one and it was one that I could absolutely not pass up. And I spoke about this with this man earlier, where when I tell my dad that I got to interview him, my dad is literally going to freak out and really start taking interest in all this stuff. So a longtime member of the band Chicago coming out with his solo album early in 2021, singer, songwriter, guitarist, keyboardist, and all around good guy, Bill Champlin. So Bill, welcome to Chord Progression Podcast. Hey man, Chord Progression. I mean, when I heard it was Chord Progression, I went, wow, am I learning something new? <laughs> I'm sick of the progressions I'm using. <laughs> So, uh, is this where I go to find a new chord progression? Uh, it's great. To, it's great to see you, Kevin. It's cool. It's great I'm to see you. It's great to see you as well, Bill. I'm glad that you're here as well. I'm glad to get talked. By the to way, you more. mentioned that that it was with Chicago. I was out of that band in 2009, so it's been a good little while. It's been a good little while, but from what I know, is you were in there from the early 80s to the end of the 2000s. So yeah. again, that's almost a 30 year career right there. And 28 I, years. In, yeah, in and 80, I feel like. 81, I think it was uh, August of 81 through about August, around August of 2009. The reason I brought up is because I feel like most people are going to, when I say that, they're going to associate that with you right away. So there's going to be a connection made right there, especially in the minds of fans. So I wanted to bring that up right away. However, the key of the interview today is the fact that you being on the podcast is that you have a new solo record coming out in 2021 with the first single coming out on new year's day so i mean you're pretty much starting out the new year strong at this point coming out with a new single yeah it's, and it's the opening song of the album which which you know i love it just because it starts off it's kind of like bambi meets godzilla it starts off da 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 da, da and then along comes some <laughs> it starts hitting really right off the bat that i and i wrote the song with uh well my wife tamara and i wrote the lyrics and melodies and uh Bruce Geich, who's a, a guitarist, he worked with Richard Marks an awful lot. He's done a lot of songwriting over the years, and he's been a really good friend of ours for a long time. He found the track in his, and he was just looking through his Pro Tools files, and he found a track. And this sounds like a Bill and Tamara thing. I'm gonna send it to him. He just send us an MP3. We were recording it within a day. Really, dude, we got it written. All you got to do is send us the uh, send us the files. I'll I'll import them into a Pro Tools file. 
and go to work. And that thing was, with the exception of the Hammond B3 on there, which I played later on, uh, that thing was recorded. The vocal, all the vocals were done. The lyrics were written and the vocals were done within like three days. That track is just on fire. Vinnie Caliuto is playing drums on it. Uh, one of my favorite bass players in the world, George Hawkins, was playing bass. George passed away a couple of years ago. So it was great to get a George track on the, on the album because he's one of my all-time favorite players and singers too. It is good to get him on the track because then you're bringing more of that past from what you've done and people you've worked with into the solo record as well, even if they haven't been around for a while. But the fact of the matter is that one someone of your friends sent you an old Pro Tools track that he'd been working on and it just fit perfectly. And all of a sudden, three days later, you pretty much had this whole entire thing set, ready to go and done. It just speaks to the fact that when inspiration strikes, you just got to hit it while it's hot. And it seems like, yeah. like we talked about earlier, right before we started recording, that's exactly what you did with a lot of these songs. Yeah. Well, you know, I've, I've just always said that you, you sometimes the, the, your progression or your chord thing or your, or your groove lick, it's better just stumbling into it. That's why, you, you know, you pl I play free a lot. I go to the piano and just, you know, and I just go ahead and play free smoke a joint and go for it you know and that's been going on since the early you know i mean i played in a band in san francisco bay area in the mid 60s so you know what we were doing then and believe me it's still going on you know we're still having fun this album is is it's coming from a really really cool place and all, all these you know i i think that 2021 there's going to be as many albums coming out as there were babies born nine months after the new york blackout you know, because <laughs> everybody I know says, well, I can't go out and play live. I can't do anything else. I got to be musical. Hell, I'm going to the workstation and work some stuff up. And, oh, God. Know, yeah. Their logic. I mean, even even garage band. I mean, people are making records because they got nothing else to do. So oh, and that's yeah. kind of cool in a way. I know it's so many bands. Everything on the recording side so more than the live thing, you know. Oh, yeah. I know so many bands that have really taken that to effect where, okay, COVID-19 hits. What are we supposed to do when we can't tour? We can't go out on the road and we're kind of all stuck in our, in our houses at this point and we can't go out and do all these things we used to do. So they focus on either trying to build their band and build their brand online, really focus on social media, focus on streaming, all that kind of stuff. But so many bands, it's just, they'd have that raw tenacity and that raw will to be creative. So especially when there's a lot of emotion, a lot of things going on in 2020, not only with the pandemic, also with the Black Lives Matter protests and with the presidential election, there's so many emotions that are happening where writing music is a great way to express what was going on and express those emotions that were happening. So especially in 2021, I feel like especially, you know, come like between April and October, it's like every single week is going to be a massive amount of releases that are happening from not only rock and metal, but all across the board as well. Yeah, I agree. Yeah, it's great. At some level, what a better time. You can't find a better time to write songs than, well, you know, I mean, it used to be, you know, I'm, well, let's get in and write the song. We'll finish it tomorrow because I got to go over here and do this. Or I got to go sing backgrounds on somebody's album. I got to go to the store or something equally, you know, <laughs> got to go take out the trash. You know, <laughs> hey, rock star, take out the trash. Okay, I got you. <laughs> dishes. I got to do the dishes before I write the song. You know, any of that kind of stuff. In this kind of situation, you're sitting there writing and you're going, well, I got no place to go. So I'm going to just stick with this thing until it's just just perfect, until it's just there. Right. Yeah, you're the same the thing with, with performing and, you know, uh, recording. I mean, I've I'm kind of known around at least around around L.A. and a lot of the different people here. 
I mean, I've been a background vocal arranger for, for many records, a whole lot of records, and I'm real kind of good at it. You know, I'm, I'm good at stacking, putting my own, my own group together with, you know, just putting track upon track upon track. But I mean, I, and I do that really kind of well and it's all happening, but I, on this album, I went, I don't want to sing lead the same day I sing backgrounds so I can walk into the studio with a different hat on. Because the lead, the lead really has to touch people, I think. And a lot of times uh, over the years I've been, I mean, Tamara's kind of noticed it a couple of times. You know, you're, you're singing great, but it's you still sound like you're doing just a background track. Put some uh, put some heart in it. You know, I mean, not not that it doesn't have heart, but put some just teeth gnashing power into the things. And I, and I kind of this time around, I went for that. And I, and I, I think I got a better a better lead lead vocal thing going on this record than I have on a lot of things, you know. I think that's got a great approach to go along with it as well, because along not only with yourself, but many other bands and musicians that are making music at this time, because again, you're able to go in and you're able to focus on just one thing that day if you really want to. So if you're focusing on just recording your lead vocals, then you're all into that mindset. You're locked in to the point where you're not worried about what's coming next. You're not worried about, okay, I can only do this for this certain amount of time. Then I got to record backing vocals on this other track or maybe with this other band as well. And your mind's kind of in two places at once. At this point, you're able to really focus in deep on what you're working on so that the best comes out of it. And yeah, it is different when you're recording uh, lead vocals and backing vocals because those lead vocals, that's going to be the main draw for a lot of people as well because that's one of the biggest things that happens in rock and metal. And I mean, anywhere all across that's, the board. Believe me, that's always, no matter how, what, how, how the tracks are, whether it's reggae, whether it's real hard metal, whether it's anything, what you're selling is the song and the singer. That's what you're. That's what you're really presenting. You're just presenting it with different with different beds, as it were, you know. And uh, and that's what's what's kind of cool about what this one's doing is it's it's just. And I got real real good friends to come help me with it, you know, so that it's not just all me. Yes, I could do it all myself. I don't want to, you know. I got really good drummers on this record. Vinny Vinny Caliuto played he didn't even know he was going on my album i don't know if he still does for that matter <laughs> i mean you know then he played with jeff beck and sting and he's just he's an amazing drummer uh joni mitchell i mean this guy is, he's been in the ball game and he just plays as good as anybody on the earth and when i got this track from bruce a reason to believe i just went oh my goodness me and you know the, the lyrics on reason to believe are kind of about gratitude you know i'd i'd gone through some cancer moments and uh, and Tamara really helped me out so it was kind of a thank you thing Bruce Geich himself had gone through some some pretty serious uh, physical you know medical crap at uh, uh, you know and this day and age all this with COVID-19 a lot of people have you know I mean nobody's alone when it comes to getting sick at different times so I mean I, I, I put as much of my you know I, I, I'm really thankful otherwise I don't think I'd have made it through you know oh I don't it's behind me now, but I, you know, when it was going on, I mean, I, I've, I had a week where, and you know, I'm not searching for modeling anything, but I, I, I was diagnosed with, uh, with, you know, very, very aggressive cancer on a Monday, and my, my older son passed away on a Tuesday from, the next day, from oh. esophageal cancer, and it was like, nice week, huh? <laughs> you know, it took me two years to write the song about him. You know, that's, I've never worked harder to try to get a song out from my insides you know what i mean and that's on the record anybody who hears the song just who knows the story just goes oh god this is this is really cool really 
really cool thing. I mean, because when you're writing songs, you really it's it's cathartic in some level. You're getting it out from inside, so it's not just eating you up. No, that's one thing I'm always a huge proponent of listening to music as well, because when an artist really puts their true selves and really puts all these more difficult emotions in there, what you end up getting is something that really gives a tangible feeling to something that's very hard to describe for someone. So when you're talking about what it feels like to lose a son or lose a brother or lose anyone that you really love and you're trying to describe what that feels like, people will relate to music. There's one song that came up from a band called Saul on their album this year called Rise is Equals. They're a hard rock alt metal band out of Iowa. And they wrote the song Brother about uh, the two brothers, the singer and I think one of the guitarists. They lost their younger brother and just trying to go through that kind of emotion, really describe it. It's so powerful. It's, and it just it takes, really sticks takes out your a mind. long time. It takes it just takes a long time to really get that out, and to be able to really put that out there. I mean, the, the doing making records and recording, playing guitar for me, playing keyboards for me. I look at it as a craft. It really is a craft. But if you if you work your craft long enough, eventually this thing comes down and goes boom, and it becomes art. And you you get you got to give art a chance because we don't create art. Art happens through us. We can create craft. Somebody told me years ago a really great producer. He produced Billy Joel's couple, first couple of records, and it's just it was a really really good friend of mine. Great producer, and he says, just remember the first thing to go to tape is who you are and how you feel. After that, time, intonation, enunciation, all the things that we went to school to learn, right? But what you're really putting on tape is is what's what's in your insides. That's why a lot of the, the newer music that's that's out is just so perfected that you're missing a lot of what that means. I mean, listen closely to Jimi Hendrix, and it wasn't, wasn't the most in tune singer in the world. But and he could have, you know, I mean, you could you could remaster his stuff and retune his vocals, but that ain't then it ain't Hendrix anymore. You know, you can put auto tune on anything. And, and it just, it becomes this, it becomes what it is and it's all perfect. I remember the first time I heard a record that was completely auto-tuned and I went, man, that's unbelievable. I didn't realize what it was. I just thought these, it was a country song. I think I just met these guys singing tune. Wow. And then after a little while I went, uh, wait a minute. And at the end of it, I went, that's the most amazing thing I've ever heard. And I don't want to hear it again. <laughs> it hurt, you know, Something felt, I mean, I had a pretty good song. It was a country song. And so it was, it was actually a pretty deep song. It was all going on. All her vocals were all completely tuned. And I just went, I don't want to ever hear this again. This is pissing me off because it's not real. And then you get somebody like Alison Krauss, who really sings that in tune already. She, she, the last thing that girl ever needs is a, is a, is a tuning machine. Oh, you know? God. Yeah, you're right on that one. Oh man, could she, she, it almost hurts so much. It's just so dead perfect in tune. And when you think about it, she's been playing violin all her life. And, you know, it's a fretless stringed instrument. You, you kind of have to tune on the fly as you go. And she just applied that chop to her vocals. And there are so many people within music that do something like that, where they come up and they learn either different styles or they're influenced by many different genres and they blend them into what they're going for. And that just creates this whole entire new sound that is uniquely them. But it's all because of their upbringing. It's all because of their experiences and what happens. And when it comes to talking about the songs that like, you know, are really like overly perfected, auto-tuned to perfection to make sure they sound super crisp. I'm not the biggest fan of those either, just because you lose a lot of the emotion that comes out in there, especially in the vocals. And when I listen to more stuff within rock and metal, especially more like metalcore, where you have a lot of those more screaming, unclean vocals, 
It's not the fact of what they're saying. It's the fact that it's the roughness and the rawness in those vocals that create like an extra instrumental feel. And you really feel the emotion of that anger, of that depression, of that sadness within those and more of a rougher sound. It really brings out more of that genuineness to it. Yeah, absolutely. Listen to Sgt. Pepper and, and, and think of it as to how it is as to say if the same people did the same songs nowadays and produced them now the way they're producing records now and think of all those things i mean i've i listen to a lot of beatles just cuz i mean i've got you know satellite radio so i listen to the beatles channel a lot cuz god well first of all bass playing is always stellar <laughs> yeah mccartney's a good oh, yeah. bass player i mean aside from all the rest which is pretty his his bass playing from the word go from the very first thing i ever heard i went Bass player's dead in the dead in a pocket. <laughs> He's great, but uh, and you listen to it. It's not all really in tune. You know, I I read the news today. Oh boy, that's not in tune. But you know, I wouldn't want to hear it any other way than the way it is. It's just so you know. Listen to John Lennon's Imagine. It's not in tune, but my God. <laughs> You know, it's John Lennon. I mean, he's, this guy's putting this stuff right there, and it's and it's it can't be, you know, you can't beat it with a stick. That kind of that kind of thing is just. Uh, I mean, for me, it's just insanely great. You know. Oh, oh, I totally agree with you on that aspect, and especially when you look at music that came out like more '60s, '70s, '80s, where you had less of that tuning going on. It was more just how the singer sounded. You yeah. really got a lot more of that roughness, that rawness in there, yeah. and it gave a genuineness to those songs, like with the Beatles, with McCartney and Lennon. Take a look at Queen with Freddie Mercury. I mean, his oh. voice was absolutely impeccable, but yeah. if you recorded it in a in a in the way that stuff's recorded in 2020, you're not going to get nearly that same sound because they had to work with what they had and just yeah. creating what they had with what they had. Oh well, my Freddie, god! And actually, the, all the real, real high parts on all his all his vocal stacks. It's the drummer. Do you know that? Really? The drummer sings all that real high stuff. I didn't know that until somebody told me that, like, I don't know, two years ago, when the, right around when the movie came out. That drummer's deep into those into those vocals. It's not just Freddie. But Freddie could stack anything and get away with it. The guy was really an amazing musician. <laughs> Crazy than a junkyard dog, but he was yeah. an amazing and a really an amazing musician. It was really cool. I'm going to have to ask my brother on that one because one after the movie came out, like he's always been a Queen fan, but he got even more into it at one point where last year for Halloween in 2019, because he works at a bar on the campus of the University of Wisconsin in Madison, and he dressed up as Freddie Mercury looking like he had the outfit from Live Aid, and they had him go up on the bar and sing Bohemian Rhapsody with the bar <laughs> just packed full of people. Unfortunately, I was not there that night because I'm Milwaukee's in Madison, 70 miles away. I didn't want to go to a college town for um, a Halloween weekend because I had stuff going on here. But yeah, I, I saw like someone sent me a rather um, not the best quality cell phone video, but it was still just amazing just to see him. Just up your favorite favorite movie at this point in the game. You know? Oh, I've got it saved somewhere. I'm like, I'm just holding on to that just for sheer reference at some point. Like, you remember when you did that? You know, when you're really old and you're at Thanksgiving dinner with your brother, you say, hey, man, how about this? <laughs> Pull that out and see me. She's, I did what? <laughs> oh, don't worry, Bill. I'm going to bring that up at Christmas this year already. I mean, even though it's yeah. only a little bit over the a year old with that video, I'm still yeah. going to bring it up because why not? <laughs> yeah, I hear you talking, man. You're right on the money. It's great. That's yeah, but, cool. but what are brothers for? But, to, you know, I got to give him shit. Why? Because he's my brother. 
exactly and it's even times too where like him and i we've got sometimes we have this completely different mindset completely different moniker on different things as well even with music where sometimes he's more in some more that uh some more edm stuff where me more hard rock heavy metal metalcore punk rock that kind of stuff but there's always sometimes where we can go back and it's like okay if we're gonna go to a concert together what are we gonna go see and it always ends up having its base somewhere in rock music whether we're gonna see something more clat like more of like a like the older sense of rock with 60s, 70s, 80s kind of stuff, or we're going to see some kind of ska punk from the 90s where you're going to have some, we're going to have those more rock instrumentations, but you're also going to have the brass section in the background as well because I'm just going to say this, those shows are fun as all hell, and I love going to those. So you get, yeah. the, get the music that he likes, get me with also the music I like, but also the shows I like. So it's like, yeah, this is perfect. And then we just have yeah, a blast doing that. Funny, Tamara and I were thinking about moving to Austin quite a few years ago, and we, and we went down, we stayed in a hotel for a day. We just went kind of went around. I just wanted to go check out because you know i was a stevie ray Vaughan fan and and dig a lot of the blues and some of the writers that come out of the austin area john hyatt and, and different people like that and uh and we just went and said well let's go see if we can find that blues bar here's some really good blues and every single bar was stage diving and it was just the, whatever the music was lately and then i realized it is a college town i mean it's not going to just be you know austin city limits <laughs> yeah it's, it's gonna be it's gonna be what it is i kind of went well, you know, I, I have yet to find that blues bar we were looking for, but I sure found a lot of, there's a lot of guys were playing kind of ska stuff, really, you know, fast and frantic and jumping off the stage and doing all that craziness. So I remember there was a, a black comedian was talking about, now what's this stage, uh, diving off the stage and having the audience catch you and run you around? He said, you go to a Luther Vandross concert, have him jump off the stage, everybody move out of the way and go, Lou, what are you doing? <laughs> <laughs> I ain't going to catch him. Yeah, it's like... It's uh, just, it's, you know, there's, there've been so many, so many different things. I know you were talking earlier and you were saying, well, you know, the different styles and the different things, but we're still dealing with 12 notes. That is true. Everyone's dealing with them. Those same 12 notes. It's the same 12 notes. No matter what you do, there's 12 notes. So it's, it's to try to make them happen. I had a guy talk to me years ago when I was a kid and he says, never stop stealing. He says, because there's, there's only 12 notes. And, and, and if somebody has a way of doing a style on the 12 notes, rip it off. Just don't just rip off from him, rip off from everybody. If in the morning you like something that Ray Charles did, try to learn it. And if at night you hear something Willie Nelson did that you like, try to learn that. Eventually you'll forget where you stole it all and your stuff will start cross-ventilating cross inside. The next thing you know, you have your style. Oh, absolutely. One thing I always talk with a bunch of the bands I uh, interview on here is, especially with ones that people don't know is, okay, what are your influences? And especially with all different members of the band, there's times where someone, all different members of the band have influences in all completely different realms. And then I talk about how everyone has these different influences. But when you bring them together, one person's going to know exactly, let's say, how something with more of a funk uh, background works, something more of a jazz background works versus someone who has more of like a grunge or more alternative rock background. And then there's someone that has that classic hard rock background. Mixing that all together, you're going to get something that's going to end up being uniquely yours. But it came from so many different places that people uh, have already created. You're actually talking it, about my album at this point. All of those, <laughs> All of those influences are definitely in there. You know, I mean, I've, I've, I've been involved. You know, I've got two uh, R&B Song of the Year uh, songwriting Grammys, uh, for, one for Earth, Wind & Fire and one for George Benson. Uh, so, I've, you know, I'm, I've, I've been an R&B fan all my life, but 
it was always something about that guitar and that loud amplifier that really appealed to me. So I kind of learned to play pretty strong guitar, hard, very hard guitar, at least live. And then somewhere along the line, I started listening to rhythm guitar players and some of them are great. I mean, Keith, uh, 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 what's his name? <laughs> How's, how about forgetting Keith's name from uh, from the Stones? It's one of the oh, best Keith Richards? Guitar. Yeah, he's, he's one of the best rhythm guitar players on the earth. You check out what he's doing rhythmically and it's like, oh my goodness. I watched a show, uh, it, was, it, was, it was on TV, but it was a full show. Has a different tuning for every single song. Kind of, you know. For a rhythm and guitarist? Rhythm, yeah, just on his rhythm guitar stuff. I mean, he has, he has a different tuning. So he has a different guitar handed to him for almost every single song that he plays because he comes up with these really cool tuning things. And that's, what, that's kind of a way to, to, to back into, sort of stumble into some cool stuff. It's just tune the guitar differently than you normally do. I'm not that guy. I usually keep it pretty regular, regular, normal tuning. And uh, I mean, because for me, I really loved playing drums when I was a kid. And that that lent itself to all kinds of different instruments. Well, I'm probably primarily in the in the scene. I'm, pri I'm, I'm primarily known as a singer. But other than that, I'm primarily known as an organ player, Hammond organ player. And, you know, I remember where I was the first time I heard uh, a jazz, uh, you know, a jazz organist. You know, Jimmy Smith, it was just insane. He had a, he had a big number one hit playing organ, you know, playing. And it was it was when it was on AM radio. So, I mean, man, I, you know, I immediately cop stuff from him. I'd hear him play something. I'd learn how to play it on guitar. If I hear a guitar player play something, I'd learn how to play it on guitar and on piano or, and on keyboards. And after a while, it just sort of cro everything cross references. And, and vocally, if I can play it, I can usually sing it. You know. Oh, easily. And like, even like, kind of like bringing myself in there a little bit in the mix. When I was a kid between about, when I was about 10 years old, I started playing drums. I gave it up after I was 14 because I wanted to go play sports instead when I got into high school. Probably shouldn't have done that at this point if this is what I'm doing. But there was always one thing I always love about with the drums is just, I love the fact that, you know, I could just pound on something, have get a little bit of that anger out and it was loud and it was heavy and I loved every aspect of it. But the one thing that always, and I just and realized. neighbors were real, really liked it too, didn't they? <laughs> oh, my parents absolutely were enamored with it. My brother was so happy with my drumming that he would consistently put his hands over his ears anytime that I was playing. I mean, he <laughs> loved it that much. But I just realized this where. <laughs> great. Yeah, I just realized this where there was something where the snare drum that I had for my uh, like beginner drum set, uh, the snare was never super tight. It was always kind of loose. So it always had this like harder, more just really raw rattle to it. And I never could really tighten it up for some reason. I tried so many different things. And I just couldn't get it to get tight the way I, I wanted to, it to be just so that it was back to normal. But then thinking about it, whenever I'd hear, whenever I started listening to punk rock and I heard that just raw snare sound in there, it was so powerful. And it reminded me of all the times that I was playing drums and just hitting it and trying to figure out what that, like why, I also like that raw snare at the same time too. Yeah. And then it just made so much sense. And all of a sudden I dove head first into punk rock. And I, when I was like 14, 15, I'm just like, oh, no, I get it. And I, you, you, it's you an epiphany moment studio, right here. Yeah. You go to the studio with any of these really big time drummers, you know, whether it be Vinny or, or even in the old days, Jeff Carroll, who was, who was one of the, one of the, he really wrote the book, you know, in terms of studio drumming, uh, Kenny Aronoff, all those guys. You look at their stash. I mean, they'll, they'll get cartage to bring in their drums. You look at their stash, and there's usually about ten snare drums. And what do you want? How do you want this song to sound? You want a tight piccolo snare, which is sort of like you would hear uh, nowadays in marching bands. You know, did you ever see that movie Drumline? You know, yeah, 
snares were so high. I mean, they were, you know, they were, you know, they were pulled tighter than Joan Rivers's face. <laughs> or, or, or I should have said Nancy Pelosi. I saw her one time. She, she had, she had so many pull. It looked like a piccolo snare over her, over her uh, cheekbone. <laughs> Wow, man! <laughs> Be careful. If it gets cold, it's gonna crack just like a <laughs> like a snare drum head. <laughs> but, but you know, you get those, and then you get these. You know, I think the Eagles of Don Henley used to play with a with a lower, kind of a lower fat, real kind of a fat snare drum sound. And I I know when I go to uh, Alan Hertz, who actually played on my record and mixed it. He's a great uh, he's a great drummer and and a monstrous mixer. I mean, he really mixed the record great. But he has this big thing. It's all with wooden, like with wooden. Uh, you know, it did, we didn't use it on the record because it was not quite the music that I wanted to use. That I wanted to do. But and then there's all kinds of different ways of making that snare happen. A lot of different ways. You know, a lot of drummers play with a rim shot on the two and four, and a lot of them just play middle of the drum, classic drumming, and it just goes on and on and on. That's why I gave it up. I couldn't. I mean, they started having such good equipment that that my playing started sucking because I really, I really played a lot better when the when the foot pedal was just an old piece of, you know, old Camco, you know, the little, little, you know, I'd break them all the time. And now they've oh, yeah. got them where they're chain driven and you really have to have chops to play them correctly. So I just went, I'm going to stay off the drums at this point. It doesn't make any sense for me to play anymore. So I gave it up just like you did, yeah. you know, I, not for sports, but yeah. I, I figured that, you know, I'm, I'm doing better just playing an organ and singing this stage of the game and, and guitar. I thought about getting back into drums and trying to buy like an e-drum kit just so that it wouldn't be super loud and wouldn't take up as much space with smaller living nice accommodations. To work with a lot. Yeah. My, my problem is, is I was like, you know what? I could use that money somewhere else. But also the fact of the matter is, is I still would probably play loud enough to get complaints from my neighbors. So that might not necessarily be the best idea. Yeah. Well, you can get into cans. You know, I, I usually, for some of the stuff that I do, I'll do drums, but I'll do them on a keyboard. You know, the bass drum is down at a low C. Snare drum is the is the, the 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 C sharp, D, E flat, E, F, and F sharp. Different kind of you know, some of them, one of them's a cross stick and stuff like that. So I can go ahead and do that. But I've been thinking about getting e drums to to plug into my uh, computer, so I can actually play some of these things in rather than playing like that. Hey, nice drum part, yeah. <laughs> so yeah, exactly. I did it like this. You know? Yeah, I'm just playing like that. It's like, okay, I got it. And, but I, the only reason I do that is, is just to get a, this, this is the feel I want on the song. And then I get a drummer to go, you hear what I did? Great. Throw me out and you replace it, you know, because <laughs> a real drummer is going to have a better vibe on it, you know? Yeah, but when it comes to creating the sound that you want, I mean, when it comes to really fully embodying the whole entire song, you're really forcing yourself to know every single part and figure out exactly what you want to the point where after you write that drum part just on your keyboard, all of a sudden when it time, comes time to actually record it, bring it to an actual drummer be like, or a studio drummer be like, hey, this is what I want on this. And then all of a sudden they're able to do some little bit more technical things with a drum kit that's going to end up making it sound the way that you really want it to sound and then some. Right. Well, you know, I just leave fills. I mean, I just put down some boom, bap, boom, boom, check on, boom, boom, bap. And, and that's, that's sort of gives the drummer an idea. He could go, boom, 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 you know, he can add these other little, little fluffs and fills and stuff that really make it sound great. You know, I wish I could play them. 
I ain't that good, but I, I, I know what I want. I just know I can't really play it. So with me, a, a computer will do most of the work and hit the little quantize, input quantize. I'll, I'll play it and it'll be a little out of time and the thing will just yip, put it right <laughs> together. And, yep, that's what I want. The swing factor is 17%. I'm, I'm cool with it. And then the drummer knows where I want to put it. And plus, I've all, uh, I, I usually put all my rhythm guitars, basses, you know, whether I'm playing, you know, Fender bass or whether I'm playing keyboard bass, I've, I've kind of already laid down where the pocket is. And then uh, and at that point, again, the drummer, if he, didn't, if he can't figure that one out, get another drummer, you know, the way I look at exactly. it. Exactly. And when it comes to like letting the drummer kind of create some of those more fills as well, what I like about that is, is especially after they're able to listen to the song a couple of times, really understand the direction of it. Because a lot of times, especially within rock and metal, like those fills are used to transition from one part of the song to the next. And when you exactly. understand how each piece of the song is working, especially as a drummer, then you're gonna be able to create a fill that's gonna accurately and properly transition from one part to the next without overpowering it or underselling it going into that next part of the song, whether it's from a verse to a pre-chorus, a pre-chorus to a chorus, or just yeah. like a chorus kind of coming out of it into maybe a post-chorus or going back into right before you get back into that second verse. I always have fun with bridges. Every once in a while, I'll take a bridge and put the bass drum on two and four just to make something different. And it very rarely works. I'll just tell the drummer, go give me four on the floor there. The, leaving the bass drum out on the ones and two, uh, ones and threes. Some about it, you know, and at least in my music, it doesn't really work. In reggae, it works great. You know Say, because I mean? leaving it out on the one and the three, that just sounds like something that, of course, on paper, when you think about it, it's not going to make sense. You always want to make sure that dr that bass drum is either on one, two, three, four, or one and three to kind of keep it going and have the snare be on the two and the four. However, if you try and kind of reverse it, it is a different sound. It's going to give you a completely different vibe, but it might work out. It might not. It all depends upon the direction of the song and the feel of it. I always find if I do that, I'm immediately going, I don't want to, it's not what I wanted to do. So I'll, I'll go back and redo the drums. So I don't find myself trying to, you know, trying to, you know, smoke a big fatty and, and, you know, <laughs> 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 and, and, you know, all that roll, all the sticks and st stems and seeds into it, you know, get that <laughs> reggae thing going. It's pretty nutty. I, I, I mean, I love what reggae did. That first couple of Marley records were just insanely great, just how much pocket was. But the guy who was really setting up a lot of what that groove was the left hand of the organist. The organist, one, get, get, get. And that really kind of, it's just provided a lot of what that forward motion was in, in reggae, which was really, really cool. But another big key with what you just said there is the fact that you understand where that came from and why that added so much to Bob Marley's music so that if you're going to try and add some of that kind of influence into what you're doing, you understand really what the driving point behind it was so that you can play around with it more and really get that kind of sound that really makes that reggae feel pop. Well, you, you you begin to see. I mean, I, you know, Alan uh, Hertz, who was my my drummer on a good portion of the record, and uh, and the mixer for all of the record, almost all the record, and uh, and you know, I've I've brought stuff to him before. I said, well, what do you you know? I'm going to do real fast. So it was a ska, really a fast ska kind of thing. And Alan was so cool; he can play jazz for days. But he can turn around and if, and if you're doing like a ska thing, he knows all the devices that make that happen. If you're doing a slow reggae thing, he knows all the devices that make that happen. 
who's who's a, who's a close friend of Ziggy uh, Zigaboo Modalest, who played on there with the early meters, and that you know, so he's, you know, you get a guy that, I think a lot of what it comes down to is you is you kind of begin to understand what the devices are, what the actual devices are that really can can move a feel from one thing to the other, because at this stage of the game, the feel is. It's everything. It's what, what the whole thing's about. How does it feel? I got three tunes on the record that are that were uh, they were basically programmed to start with by a guy named Greg Matheson. Now he played uh, played piano with Larry Carlton. He actually produced a handful of really good stuff. He and I have been writing songs. Actually, he and I co-wrote probably Al Al Jarreau's last real radio hit, a song called "Just to Be Loved." It was a jazz jazz thing, but and uh, and and but his tracks. When he does like an R&B track, it's ridiculous. It's so deep in the pocket. It's just unbelievable. Every drummer that plays on it goes, oh, this is going to be a, just a day at the beach. I'm going to have a ball with this. Because there's no question about where it is. You know what I mean? And a lot of, and with a lot of music, a lot of people just don't quite get exactly where it is. They think close is good enough. Nah. It's, there's just got to, I mean, I asked, I talked to Jim Keltner, who played with Traveling Wilburys. A great drummer, been around for years, really knows it, but he's always really known for playing on the very back end. I mean, not dragging it, but as close you can get on the back of it, you know, because the, the beat's this big. You can play it here or play it here. And he's and Jim just plays it back here. And I said, where did you get that back feel? Because I just love it. It's just something It's just so great about it. He says, actually, two different drummers were the people that I listened to that made that happen for me and one of them was the drummer with ACDC he said man that guy plays back here just just on the back end and then the rhythm guitar player plays just a teeny bit on the front end and that's what causes their all the ACDC's music to just groove like a dog and the other one he says is uh is Ringo Starr Mr. Ringo plays it here he says man and it just always impressed me you know he says Ringo's a way better drummer than a lot of people know about and and I think the reason for that is just because when you take a look at the Beatles, I mean, everyone's going to know Lennon, McCartney, and then George Harrison right after it. So Ringo always ends up being the forgotten one of the four. However, yeah. you can never discount what he actually brought to the band because without him, the Beatles wouldn't have been the Beatles. Maybe not as impactful as someone like McCartney or Lennon, but you needed Ringo there in order to make that work. Well, what 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 Ringo apparently said to, to Jim, and, I, and I'm paraphrasing, I didn't get it right. He said, well, you know, I heard... I heard some of the Beatles, you know, live tapes and stuff with Pete Best playing. It was the guy that had the gig before Ringo got it. And and he was on the front end all the time. And you you paid attention to this forward motion, which was kind of cool, like more like a Michael Jackson record. You know, I mean, those things are, you know, really militarily in front, you know, and grooving like a dog. It's a different thing, different kind of thing. He said, what Ringo said was, these songs are too good to play too fast or to rush to, to go on the back end of it makes the song more important. Boing, big, smart move, very smart thing, you know, and he was aware of that early on, you know, he wasn't just the, the, you know, the fourth mop head, you know, mop top, you know, little cute little beetle, you know, no, he understood, he understood how to make all those songs have a certain feel so that you just unforgettable grooves you know what i mean oh and and when it comes down to it too a lot of the music that has come out since the beatles had were prominent and disbanded i mean the beatles are still a prominent force because 
everyone takes inspiration from them at some point. They're just that mm-hmm. big, whether it's from how George Harrison plays guitar to Ringo playing on the back end to how McCartney perfected that bass style to the different vocal sounds and how songs with Lennon on lead vocals would work versus how songs with McCartney on lead vocals would work. There's so many intricacies there that they just yeah. perfected to the point where each album came out. And I mean, it was a smash hit every step of the way. I don't think they put out a bad album ever. What's really cool is what I kind of gathered. I mean, I was listening. Uh, we were Tamara and I were driving up to play a, a son's gig up in San Francisco. And we happened to, you know, we had the Beatle channel on. And it was Peter Asher was presenting the top 100 voted, you know, uh, satellite radio votes for the top 100 Beatles songs. And, it, and he said, and at some point, he said, at some point they were, uh, everybody was very, you know, they were kind of blown out that they really couldn't. I mean, you talk about a, a quarantine and a lockdown. Those guys couldn't leave the house and just go down to the store and buy an ice cream cone and come home. They'd be just swamped, you know. And and some, I think Lennon kind of sat there and he was writing really cool stuff, but he kind of sat there and was thinking about how popular they were. And McCartney was practicing the piano. He became a great piano player over that period of time. So, I mean, you get some musicians that are that that are just, you know, I'm not going to stay where I was. I mean, I'm I'm not the biggest Neil Young fan in the world, but I kind of dig the fact that he had he had a, a record called Harvest. I think it was Har- something Harvest. And it was it was all these kind of back tempos and, they, you know, they had a hit on it and everything. You know, his manager said give me a second record just like that we can we can we can, we can end up in dodger stadium with this kind of shit you know and he just went no I'm, i really feel like doing a country album next you know i'm gonna actually do uh uh, uh crazy horse this is the band that he had and, and you know anytime you know the 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 marketing you know arm of his career was like i'll stick with it for just a little longer so i can make a little more money and he go i, I want to do this now so I mean, it, it's sort of like Johnny the way Johnny Depp was taking uh, was taking uh, uh, acting parts or Bruce Willis and you know these guys. Yeah, I know I made some money doing this and this was all happening, but I'm gonna go over and do you know from Die Hard to Twelve Monkeys. That's a big. That's a that's a sweep, you know. And that's why you know that's why I kind of like. There's certain artists that I really like just because they do that, you know. Yeah, I yeah I already I did this style. I made this kind of record. Now I'm gonna do this style. And make this kind of record. And, uh, and you know the marketing people are going, God damn it! <laughs> just give me give me another one just like that. And, and that's what I kind of dug about the, the 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 era that you're talking about when the music was kind of kind of cool, is that the the promotion the pro, the promo campaign was wrapped around the artists. You know what I mean? That because the artist was this like Bob Dylan or the Beatles or uh, uh, you know Leonard Cohen or anybody they wrapped up the promo campaign around them. Now you have bands and they have to fit into the already existing promo campaign. That's a big difference. It's really hard to get quote stars or not stars might not be the word for it, but it's, it's hard to get, uh, uh, you know, you know, keep, keep going. You know, the next album does really well. Next album does really well. Maybe not giant, but just keep going. It's hard to get that when uh when you when when you're trying to 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 be what five other bands have already been i don't think i could put it any better way than you described it where now it's instead of marketing campaigns being wrapped around the artists it's the artists having to be wrapped around those campaigns that have already been set 
And especially yeah. now within rock metal, especially the bands that I listen to, there are very few bands that have consistently done try or tried new things, changed up some styles, and really didn't follow within whatever the certain marketing campaign was, and have really broken out of it to the point where they pretty much have autonomy to do whatever they want to do now. And two examples that come to my mind is one is the band Bring Me the Horizon because they started with this heavy deathcore sound. They want more metalcore than more of this hard rock sound. Then last year they had an album that was a lot more pop oriented. I wasn't a big fan of it, but then all of a sudden this year they came out with an EP and it's like they literally threw everything they've ever done and put it all into one and tried so many different things and each song was an absolute smash hit. The other one I can think of is the band Falling Reverse with their lead singer Ronnie Radke where he's done so many different things just trying to come up with so many different ideas, mixing so many different genres into all of his songs to the point where they put out only four or five new songs in the past three years. And from last year to this year, their listenership, especially on Spotify with their stats, has doubled. And they only put out three so- or four or yeah, five songs in the past three years. Yeah. Well, if they're the right five songs, it's worth it. You know, I was, as a songwriter, I was living in Nashville for a while because I know there's a lot of songwriting going on. And I, I hear quite a few different people say, oh, man, I wrote 30 songs today. And my answer is, any of them any good? You know, if I wrote one this year that really gets on the radio and people people really relate to and stuff like that i'm a happy guy you know what i mean it's to write 30 songs and and then and then cut them and the demos you know at least in nashville the demos are all usually cut by the same guys they'll cut five or six seven maybe eight songs in a day and you know just look at the charts you know which are the numbers you know rather than actual italian music and, and and you go that the verse of, of song number one is exactly the same as the verse of song number four and song number three has got the same chorus as song number five. And, you know, after a while, you just kind of go, I'd rather spend one day working on one song and making it special rather than this is it. We can't go beyond this because the 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 powers that be won't allow it. Yeah, and that yeah, in country music. Well, man, I just want I just want three chords and the truth. Well, the truth part I like. Three chords that ain't enough to keep me happy. I mean, if you're doing a real blues, great, you know, or a real, real one simple country song. But three chords, give me a break. <laughs> you know, I know more than that. <laughs> Yeah, and when it comes to from my standpoint as well as a as a fan of this music instead of someone that writes it, it's if it's something where all of a sudden you know I have to wait a couple, it's like all of a sudden yeah you're making an album, all of a sudden you have to wait like three or four more years than I'd expect, and all of a sudden it comes out and it's something that is truly spectacular that whoever the artist is put so much time, effort, and attention to detail and everything to make sure it came out the way that they wanted. I'm much more happier with that than getting two or three albums within that time frame that were kind of forced on or pushed because they had to meet a deadline that the record company wanted them to meet. Yeah. Well, you know, usually there's a the classic story of the sophomore, right? You know, the sophomore record. Oh, yeah. You, you spent the whole early part of your career just working to get that record deal, building the songs, playing them live, finding what works, finding, and just really honing your stuff. And you get the record out and it's a slammer hit. Then you got to have a second one, six months. You, you, it, the last one took you six years to put together. Now you got six months to do the second one. And, you know, you, you, and, and, if, and that's been, that's been thrown at many people, you know, it's been thrown at me, it's been thrown at everybody at different times. The second album maybe might, maybe might not have quite the, the, the attention paid to it that the first one did. 
son, you know, and you, you just kind of deal with it however you can. That's, that's my dog. It's my co-producer. <laughs> Done half of my vocals with this dog in my lap. Because <laughs> I mean, I I got my 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 uh, my my keyboard for the uh, for the Pro Tools. Behind that, I've got a piano. I've got a microphone coming in here, and I can just punch in a number three. I sit on at a at a chair. It's like an office job at some level. You know, I don't think I've stood up to sing a song in a long time. And somebody said, you know, you, you'll sing better if you stand up. I said, yeah. Tell that to Elton John. Tell that to Ray Charles. Tell that to Billy Joel. These guys are all sitting down to, to sing. So, and I, I've been, you know, sitting at a, on an organ bench singing, singing forever. You know, and I, I know with Chicago for a while, I was standing up to play. And at one point, I think I got a hernia or something crazy. I really couldn't stand up all that long. So I started sitting down again. I realized I was playing way more concisely. I mean, standing up at a, at a piano I mean, or, or, or playing a, a, a guitar, you know. Yeah. Frank, Frank Zappa said anybody's playing, a, playing one of those, you know, one of those uh, hand, you know, handheld uh, keyboards is trying to get the same blowjobs as the guitar players. What's going on? <laughs> <laughs> and of course, who said that? Frank Zappa. Oh, of course. <laughs> of course. That pretty much stands to reason. <laughs> One clever man. It was amazing, amazing guy. But when it comes to, you know, knowing the fact that when you when you're sitting down that you play more concise, you play more precise, and you play better to what you want to do, that takes a lot of self-awareness to know, okay, if people are gonna say, Oh, maybe you're gonna play better standing up, or maybe you're gonna sing better standing up, but knowing that you do that a lot better while sitting down and just maintaining that. That just speaks true to your craft that you know exactly what you want to do and that whenever you're writing something that you know exactly how to produce it, how to make it work. And when it comes to playing it live, you're going to get the same result. Exactly. You know, and and there's this whole kind of uh, thing about showmanship. You know, you got to you got to you got to do this and you got to do that. And you, got, you know, I was a, there was a little small band. It wasn't a great band. It was a little rock band I was playing this little club in Marin County where I was, you know, I kind of grew up up there. I mean, musically, I grew up there. And uh, and they said, hey, man, we're playing at this place called the Lion's Share. We're playing up, uh, you know, Thursday night. You want to come by and hear the band? I said, you know, I will. Uh, you know, normally I don't kind of do that that much, but I'll come here. Yeah, I'll see what you guys sound like. You know, they seem like a nice guy. So they were there. They were playing a set. And I was going, these, these guys are good. It's happening. And at some point, there was, you know, there was a 300 capacity in the club. There were maybe 35, 40 people there. But Van Morrison walked in drunker than a skunk this was back in when van was still drinking and he lived in marin county for a long time so he comes in and he and, and at some point they said hey you want to jam sure he could barely walk but he, he kind of got up hung on to the mic stand and sang and i was mesmerized there was no show he was just so in love with what he was doing that it went past alcohol it went past everything he was just scary amazing and I, I couldn't take my eyes off him. I went, wow. And I'd known Van for years and I've seen him play for years. But at this one time, I just realized it just kind of showed me. It's not so much about moves and throwing shapes. It's about presence. You know, if you have a certain presence, you don't need to do anything. Jerry Garcia never moved on the stage, but he'd play one note and the audience would go apeshit crazy because it was Jerry playing it. You know, and and you know, I'm just, it's insane. You know, but that's the way it is. I, I think there's 
there's a certain amount. Neil Young doesn't do a whole lot, but his audience is just crazy. And I, I think one of the biggest reasons why that works is when you're listening to the music, it's how the artist that's on stage performing, how their presence on stage affects and works within the theme and the flow and the feel of the music that they're playing. And that transcends to the audience as well. For myself, I love going to those shows, those insane shows, you know, where people are jumping off the stage, where there are mosh pits all over the place. Oh, I've that's got, a whole, that's another art form right there. Oh, yeah, I've, I've got, I've got injury stories that, I mean, I've, I've got almost, I have a couple of black eyes, um, huge cut above my eye to the point where I probably should have gotten stitches, but didn't, um, almost broke my nose because someone had hit me with a flying elbow. I've, I've had it a lot happen to me and probably will have a lot more happen to me once concerts return, hopefully in 2021. Yeah. But it all depends upon also you know, talking mosh pit action, right? Yeah. yeah. And yeah. When, it come, when it comes to a lot of these bands, it's, you know, they're up on stage and they're playing this harder, fast paced, really angry, energetic music at the same time as well. But their stage presence, if it matches it, it just amps up the crowd so much more and the fans get so much more into it. Now, if you're playing a much softer, somber sound and you're going to bring that stage presence on there as well, you're going to have the exact same effect in terms of that emotional connection between the artist, the music, and the crowd itself. If you look like what you're playing, is I think is what you're saying. If you, Yeah, I, I got you there. I mean, it's funny. I've, I've got a, uh, an oncologist. He's is, is, uh, actually a relatively young, very brilliant uh, uh, American-Chinese guy who's insane music freak. He's a gone music freak. And and I I I became aware of him because my radio radiation guy said, well, I know a guy has got he's got a, he's developed him and some of his people have developed a really cool chemo for just what you got. So you got to meet him. Steve Wong is his name. And, and he said, I went to school with him, but I hadn't seen him for years. I ran into him at a mosh pit at House of Blues one time. And I said, Really? He said, yeah. And, he's, and, and I, so I talked to him and he's, he's become a pretty good friend. I see him every three months. And, and he just says, hey, I'll go I'll go to a real serious butt kicking mosh pit punk rock thing and love it just as much. And the next night I'll go see the L.A. Symphony do Beethoven. And he digs it just as much. I mean, this is this is one of the few guys I've ever met who virtually loves music any kind. And he and he's that way. I mean, if if it's a if it's a real energetic band and jumping off the stage, he's he's down in a mosh pit just screaming, just getting getting off on it in the exact same groove as the band. You know, really cool guy. I introduced him to Michael McDonald on a couple of benefits that we did, and he he just loved hanging with Mike and and uh, and Michael's such a sweetie pie that it was nice of, nice of him to spend some time with. Uh, with Steve. So I mean, it's you know, every once in a while you run into a music fan that just loves everything. <laughs> it just doesn't make any difference. I just rediscovered Tchaikovsky and Beethoven in the last couple of years. Like, whoa, this is so beautiful. I mean, this stuff is really cool. And I think a lot of it might have to do with this with this COVID thing. Is I got no place to go. So in some ways, it's kind of raised my attention span. You know what I mean? Now, there's yeah. another question, and you might be able to you might be able to help me with. I know that when one of when we were younger, when the bands were coming out, when just it didn't make any difference who Led Zeppelin or whatever, it was really cool that you you know you took the album home, you put it on your stereo, and you and your friends are listening to it and going, "Wow, man, dig listen listen to what uh, you know listen to what Bonham did there, oh dig that drumlin," and everybody's kind of listening together. Now everybody's in cans, nobody's listening together to anything. 
And I always thought that that, that would would raise your uh, your attention span if you're listening with your friends or with with your wife or with your girlfriend or if more than one person is listening at the same time. And, uh, and I think that's something that music's missed a little bit, uh, that sharing of it. You know? Oh, I've I've got a couple ideas on this. So get ready for this one, Bill, because when it comes when it comes down to it, um, it is a lot different instead of when it comes to listening to music with your friends than when you're listening to it just by yourself with headphones on. Because when you listen to yourself with headphones on, if it's something that you're just not enjoying right away, you have the ability to change it. But if you're listening with your friends, you're going to want to listen to the whole thing because someone might be enjoying it or listen to a whole song so that you might end up picking up on something that you like later on. And then you guys are able to talk about it as well. If you're just listening to it yourself, you're kind of just invested in what you want to hear. And if it doesn't hit right away, you're going to just not listen to it. So that's where that loss comes in. But another big loss comes into where everything is done streaming now through Spotify, Apple Music, YouTube. And I'm, I've actually talked about this before, and I'm a huge proponent of this to where when it comes to streaming, people listen to like the first five, six seconds of a song or five, six seconds of an album. And if they don't really just resonate with it right away in those five, six seconds, they change it and they never listen to it again. And it's different than when you're buying a physical album, like you're buying a CD, buying a vinyl album, or even downloading them from iTunes back when you download MP3s because you're putting money behind it. You're actually having an investment in it. So you want to get that return on your investment. So you're going to listen to the whole thing a couple of times. You're going to really get into those deep tracks and really understand them. Not a lot of people do that because it's all single driven now because you want to make sure as a band, you're constantly within the the Spotify playlist. You're constantly in the uh, attention span of these companies and of their algorithms and of the fans as well. So yeah. there's just not as much investment from the fans or need investment from the fans to listen to the songs if they don't hit exactly the way you want. I so agree. Might- Absolutely. You're nailing it to the wall. It's mm-hmm. perfect. Because it's just, it's, you know, what we're looking at is attention span, I think, in a lot of ways. So a lot of music, you know, people say, hey, cut to the chase. Let's get to the chorus quicker. Let's get to the thing we're selling as quick as we can so, so we don't lose listeners, you know? I mean, my album's 14 songs long. And uh, and and I've, I've played it for a friend of mine. He says, you know, you might want to send, just take six songs and send it out, send it out to people to listen to so they aren't, they aren't knocked out by 14 songs. And I just say, hey, shit, play three of them. But just play one of them and you'll get it. I mean, that song that... that uh, uh, reason to believe. I mean, that's the that's the opening song on the record. If that doesn't suck you into the next song, nothing will. And the next song is funkier than a three day old band aid. <laughs> yeah, it is. Oh yeah, it is. Like like I read on I read online. Somebody said that's so funky. It move in next door and your lawn dies. <laughs> <laughs> that's cool. <laughs> in terms of funk, it's, I, I take pictures with people. I said, you know, especially when you're talking about uh, talking about. Politics and stuff like that. Man, I was kind of looking forward to a Clinton in the White House, George Clinton, <laughs> <laughs> the leader of Parliament and P Funk. You know, yeah, I wanted to see George Clinton. You know, that's funny. act one funky mofo, man, <laughs> kind of bad to the bone. You know. Anyway, I don't know. Like we said, tangents. We just went yeah, we just we, we just went off on tangents. And one thing I do want to make sure we hit on is reason to believe because that is the first single that's coming off the album. And yeah. like, like what you're saying, where if this isn't going to suck you into the second song, I don't know what will. And I will say this after listening to reason to believe I, as someone who likes a much harder sound, 
for hard rock, punk rock, metalcore. Again, telling you this so that there's context behind it. After listening to Reason to Believe, I was sucked into that second song already. So it definitely has that power as well. And a lot of it is from two things. One is a certain construction with the electric guitar that you put in there. And also your vocals are as well on there. Because when I was listening to it, there was, especially from the intro, the guitar kind of comes in a little bit soft and there's a small inclusion on there. And the whole entire time after I heard in the intro, I thought this was going to continue and I was hoping for it because it gave the song this little bit of a rock vibe to it and more potential for a little bit more pace, a little bit more substance overall. And mm-hmm. I expect to see, and I was like, okay, let's see how this turns out. First verse, right at the beginning, I'm like, okay, it's kind of staying calmer. Again, kind of staying with a little bit lower point. I'm hoping that at some point, like, okay, seeing where that intro was, seeing where this uh, first verse turned, kind of hoping it picks up because I heard what that intro is. It definitely has the power to do it. And as it kept going up and up, all of a sudden, the keyboards start coming in a little bit more. The um, the rest of the instrumentals, the acoustic guitar, the drums start coming more. And it just kind of increases that vibrato of the song to get to the chorus. And it just puts it all out there in a little bit more of a melodic sense. You add a much more fuller orchestral feel to it, but it really gives the song this full substance. And then, of course, after coming out of the first chorus, there is just a little bit of a slight electric guitar in there. And I'm like, okay, this is perfect because it really gives that rock vibe to it. And it kept holding that throughout the whole entire song where it just had this power, had this vigor that it was melodic at the same time, but also really powerful throughout the whole entire build of the instrumentals from verse to pre-chorus to chorus. Well, I look at I look at hard guitar as I think the same way that uh, that composers would look at cello. Um, now you get into Hendrix at all, and you checked out any of the Jimi Hendrix stuff. But there was there was one thing back when it, when his first record came out, I did a song called "Hey Joe," which I'd heard the song before by somebody else. But there was a point where it went ba da 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 da ba ba da ba da you know, and it doubled the bass with low guitar, and I was just going, "That is cool." <laughs> so I do a lot of that's really cool. It just has this, it just it moves everything right forward. And in that same way that you're talking about, the same way with really hard rock. And that's one of the things that I think, like we were talking about devices. That's yeah. a device that I, I just love. I do as much, I mean, without make, without doing it too much, I try to find sections of different songs where that really happens, where you really move it along that way. And, and Bruce Skytch is as good at that, as good at that as anybody on guitar. He's a great guitar player. Yeah, and I was saying, understanding that device really brought someone that has more of that hard rock likeness and more of that hard rock pedigree like myself into this song, just using that subtle device just to really add to it. I mean, it was something that, like I said, right when I heard that first part of it and then in the intro and then coming out of the first chorus, I heard it. It was just something that stuck out to me. It wasn't as hard as something that, you know, I always would listen to, but it was something that just drew me right into the song right from there and had me intrigued throughout the whole entire thing. It kept my attention through everything on it, and it was so subtly in there. It was perfectly placed. Cool, correct. Dude, the 15th song on there is a song called Slave to the Medicine. Down your alley. You're going to absolutely go crazy when you hear this because it's just powerful as hell and it's and it's it's almost prog in a way but it's still got an r&b feel to it and uh, and it was and it's it's actually not going on the the album in the united states it's going i did it for two they needed two bonus tracks for japan 
So I, I've, you know, I went ahead and mixed a couple of bonus tracks, but that one has got this, that's got the stuff that you're looking for. You're, it'll knock you out. When next time you, you, put, you know, put up the, the SoundCloud, just go to song 15 and play it and, and you'll get what I mean. It's crazier than, it's crazier than a junkyard dog is what it is. <laughs> you'll yeah. love it because it's just, it just like bites you in the leg, man. It's a powerful piece, you know? Yeah. Cause I saw there was only supposed to be 14 songs in this. I'm like, I'm going to stick to those 14. So when I do pull up that song, I'm definitely going to pull up that bonus track. Cause if it, you're saying this is something that's right down my alley, especially if you're hearing me talk about what I really liked about reason to believe, I mean, I got to go check it out. It's, it's, it's kind of a guarantee at this point. Yeah, good, good. good. You like it? There's a lot of there's a lot of different things on it. There's even one song I didn't even put bass or drums on. Uh, a song called a Stevie song, and it was just about. It was basically a song that I wrote, kind of about everybody's out, you know, yelling on the streets. They're yelling for this. You're yelling for that. I want Trump. I want Biden. I want this. I want that. Just just yelling all the time. I was going. Maybe, you know, I'm thinking about, well, what's everybody listening to these days? Yelling. <laughs> Some music. There's maybe something in the music is making people yell too much. You know, time to, you know, some, sometimes you get up, you, you really get, a, you can see around certain things culturally. If you just quiet down just that much, just for a second and just kind of listen to it. Yeah, you'll, you'll hear the song when you, when you go. It's, it's just another, it's one of those little pieces that just goes differently. You know, it just goes to a different place. Yeah, and the, and then and just, right after it, there's a you know there's a, there's a another rock and roll thing right after it. This got you know, I mean, I did most of the rhythm guitar on the record, so that's that's kind of a cool thing. You, I mean, I think you'll like the record. You know, it'll grow on you. I mean, I, I listened to it one. I listened to Reasonably probably about six or seven times when I was trying to figure out like what my thoughts were on it. I did listen to the rest of the record one time through. I didn't listen to the bonus tracks. I wanted to just get a quick like idea of exactly what I thought with the yeah. record. Yeah. I do want to jump back quickly to Reasonably because one other thing I said that I really liked about this track was your vocals because I had listened to the stuff you've done with Chicago as well, especially the more prominent tracks that you were the vocalist on. So I'm like, okay, just to kind of get what I'm expecting and then jumping into this. And what really stood out to me was just the power and just the energy that was behind your vocals as it grew into the song. Because of course, with that first core, with the first part of the verse, it's a little bit more softer. So I'm like, okay, you know, we're getting kind of something we expect, but then all yeah. of a sudden it just starts to build and just starts to build overall, especially with even some backing vocals as well. Because then when you get to the chorus, there is just so much life with this melodic construction in your vocal style. I absolutely loved it because there's just a lot of power in there. And you really feel it like what a lot of people would feel like back when you were with Chicago. So you're going to really get that but powerful feel. And then even more some because there's more behind it in my mind. You really feel that the message that these people in your life that you're so thankful for and you have all these gra all this gratitude towards are the reason to believe and keep going. It's so prominent because that energy is there in your vocals. You can really feel it. So the message in the song really comes out not only with the words that you're saying, but also with the power of your vocals. And that was something that drew me in instantly right when I heard it as well. Yeah. I've been singing a long time. <laughs> I don't know what to say, I, I, but I do, you know, I went ahead and did the backgrounds and, and my wife, Tamara helped me with that because you know, she's on the, she's on the song. And it, it was really kind of a cool thing to, to go, I'm going to, I'm going to wait a day and do the lead just on my own, knock that off and get out of the, I'm a background guy and get into the, I'm a lead guy. And it's kind of made it this time. It made a real, real difference. That song's really cool. I mean, the minute we heard that track, 
whoa, we're on this one right away, you know? Oh, it was a smart move to stay on that one. And one thing I always do when I really go in deep in these tracks, I always look at, of course, me, instrumental vocals, and then I always kind of put it in overall. If you keep seeing me turn my head, it's because I wrote all this down because I don't want to mess it up. So yeah. for a reason to believe, just for all the fans out there ready to listen to it, I wrote, overall, I think the fans that have followed Bill for many years will listen to this and think that he has even more energy now than he ever had writing songs. The inclusion of the electric guitar in this track was much subtler than you would think would work but it gave enough to the instrumentation to add substance to it and add to the vocal power while giving those vocals center stage at the same time as well. The way Bill sends us into the chorus three different ways with how his vocals work to pick up in that energetic chorus is going to put the fans on notice once again that Bill is on top of his game. Well, thank you. That's really cool. I mean, you know, somebody else would say, hey, that's great. Hey, Rockstar, take out the trash. <laughs> <laughs> That's a famous line. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, that that there's a build factor in that song. There's one point where I pulled the backgrounds out and just did, and just let one scream, you know, and I went, well, this should pretty much put the cherry on the cupcake. This is a, this is, you know, I mean, it was a real, I, for me, I, I was kind of proud of the vocal, the lead vocal on that record because it, it did this. The whole record just takes off like a, like an airplane. You know what I mean? Oh yeah, and absolutely. The, and then the groove, when you get to the second verse, that's 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 George on bass and Vinnie Colaiuta on drums, and that just you can't. There's a lot of guys can try to play that, but very few of them play it like he does. No question about it. So it's you know when I get, when I'm writing over that and singing over that, oh yeah. I mean, I've always had a I've had a saying that the, the drummer's job is to excite the singer, whose job. <laughs> is to excite the audience. And it just goes like that. If the drummer is exciting the singer, the singer's gonna go that extra mile. And uh, when you sing over the drummers I get on my records, it's happening, you know, it would be really going on. And there's, like I said, for you, for for where I'm kind of getting a vibe of, of what you what you kind of like, a man, Slave of the Medicine is gonna kill you. Oh boy. It's three, it's actually, a, yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be down. Yeah, and and my because we were originally did it as uh, we were planning on doing a second Wonderground album and the Wonderground record. I just went. I want to do solo record now, but I know I need two extra tracks, so I stole a couple from the from the band, and that was one of them. And uh, and we were all we always liked it. This is just totally going on, and uh, you'll you'll dig it a lot. Gary plays some serious in your face guitar on it. And the song afterwards, I played some pretty serious guitar on it. So, you know, those those two songs might be, you know, you may have to look around, and try to find a Wonderground album because there's a lot of that, you know, a lot of the really pretty hard rock stuff going on in that record. Still melodic, always melodic. But, uh, we used a lot more hard guitars on Wonderground than, than I did on the solo album. I'll definitely I'll definitely listen to both those bonus tracks. And then when it came to listening to just the album without the bonus tracks, I did a little quick snippet review of it just because I wanted to have a little bit more of a full substance for it for people yeah. to get either excited or be like, okay, what's this album about? So what I wrote for this one was, again, looking over here to make sure I don't mess it up. Overall, when it comes to the new album, Living for Love, I think fans are going to get what they're hoping for instrumentally from Bill and then some because you're going to get this vast range of like jazz rock, rock and roll, some funk, some R&B. You're going to get a lot of this different stuff in there. But it's gonna have a lot of diversity as well, and it's gonna be all, it's gonna be great. Just trust me on this. But what really stands out to me is the most over like the previous works that you've done was your vocals because that alone with the energy that was behind them 
really adds so much to all these songs and gives that instrumental diversity so much more life and so much more vigor overall. So if fans that have been following you from your days, Chicago, from your days of doing stuff, even before then and after that, I think they're really going to have a good time listening to this record through and through from song one all the way to song 14. Great, man. Thank you so much. It's, it's, uh, I think you you listen to it. You get you know even though you're into you're into some hard rock, a lot of people that are just don't have ears, and you got ears. You're, you're listening for form, and uh, form is I think the the thing around which we build all of our music. I'll say well, th- I'll say thank you for saying that because I mean I, when I started doing this stuff like about little bit over almost two and a half years ago. Yeah. It, I was coming from a place where I just listened to music and if I liked it, I liked it. If I didn't, I didn't. I really didn't know why. And I pretty much was trying to figure this out as I went along. So even some of my like early, like look, let the reviews of certain albums, they're kind, they're pretty choppy because I wasn't necessarily sure exactly what I was doing. But over time I've picked up certain things. I fi- figured certain things out about what I like, what I don't like and how certain things work. So yeah. I've really tried to understand that. And even with, um, genres and styles that I don't necessarily listen to all the time or really get into when I listen to them, I'm going to give them a fair shake because as an artist, you put a lot of time and effort into that. And I want to, if there's something I like about it, yeah, I'm going to say it. Don't yeah. get me wrong. If there's something I like about it, like with this album, with the power and the energy that's behind your vocals, it was a draw into every single song on this record. Exactly. Great. Well, you know, it's something that, something that, uh, you know, any, and if you're into classical music and, and, but it's just music in general, music appreciation classes, their main thing is to listen to this piece and tell me what the form is. And it's about the form and, and, and you can listen to any, any hard rock. I mean, I don't care who it is, you know, I mean, there's form in it. And, but a lot, I think a lot of the, some of the pop stuff and even some of the EDM stuff, there really isn't any form. There's really no rhyme and reason as to section to section to section. What I like is what you mentioned earlier is where there's a point where, you, you know, you're going from letter A to letter B to pre-chorus and then from pre-chorus into letter C, which is chorus. Here we are. Here's the business right here. And, uh, and, and how well you do that is, you know, I mean, it's, it's how good you are at, arranging you know arranging is really a big thing no matter no matter what it is whether it's reggae whether it's hard rock whether it's metal it's about form it's always about form and when it comes to that form too it's about also tell basically kind of guiding you along with the message that the song is saying not only with the lyrics and with the vocals both the instrumentals as well because if you're trying to build a song based off let's say it's based off of depression and you're trying to build into that, whether it's something that's a little bit more serious, a little bit more like drawn back, a little bit more subdued at the same time. What you want to do is when you're going from that building that form from verse to chorus or verse, pre-chorus, chorus, you're going to want to lead in so that that feeling of going from one spot to the next, from one point to the next, you understand the path of that feeling and people can relate to that. And especially if you went through something like that yourself, whatever the situation might be, whatever the theme of the song might be, if you went through something through like that personally, You'll just recognize. putting... Yeah, yeah, just even if it, even if it's something that people didn't go through exactly the same that you did, just the emotions and feelings, people are going to recognize that pattern and remember that emotion. So that guiding along with that, they're going to remember and relate to it with what they went through, and that's an incredibly powerful thing. Well, I read something. I don't know if I read it or heard it. It was somewhere in the last six months, or so, well, maybe more than that, maybe a year. Somebody said, "If it isn't personal, it isn't art." <laughs> wow dig that because we can all write i mean i mean i've been writing uh, pop songs for a long 
time. And I know that some of it's just a matter of, well, okay, she loves him. He doesn't like her anymore. Da, 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 da. You know, you have your premise, you, you write about around that premise. And, and then I realized, I said, well, that's all really great, but I, I kind of want to get a little more personal. I want to talk about some things. I mean, the, occasionally there's like a bluesy, there's a blues tradition is, oh, baby, honey, what's wrong with you? You know, I mean, there's a certain amount of that that, uh, it's it climbs into my music every once in a while. Usually you can go, well, I got that. You know, if you're in the mood for some loving, come on over here. You know, that kind of baloney, you know what I mean? And, and that's that's the thing. Like when I first started with the Suns back in the day, I was kind of going, I love R&B. And then I'm all of a sudden I'm listening to the Beatles and I'm listening to some really cool lyrics, very uplifting lyrics. And I'm and I'm going well. I like that. Your Bob Dylan, for instance. You know, I like. I'm not digging the music that much, but I love that these people are saying this. And then I was going, you know, from listening to Wilson Pickett and stuff. I was going. I'm a man and a half, and you know, then, you know, let me get these words and put them in these grooves and see what happens. So I ended up doing a lot of that, and 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 that's one of the things I think that really got a lot of people's attention about my songwriting was with the early sons. Is that I crossed that over, you know, I tried to cross over some kind of uplifting lyrics that, that mean something, that say something, that story that's got your heart in it, instead of just the usual, you know, <laughs> I'm gone from New York, sorry, but I can't yeah. take you, you know, I mean, oh, that's a great tradition, but it ain't, it, it's not, not what I want to do so much anymore, you know, just, just old blues lyrics, but sometimes it sneaks in, every once in a while you get one like that, you know. And if it rhymes and it's all working and it's and it's a good vehicle for the band, fine, I'll sing it. <laughs> I was raised in R&B, so I mean, that's, that kind of stuff is second nature. Yeah, I can knock that off in a minute. When you brought up the fact of if it's not art unless you put yourself personally into it, and if it, it kind of when you're writing pop songs at times for other artists, it just kind of like sometimes I feel like, especially with pop artists, it kind of seems somewhat bland and just not necessarily as personal. And at times when I was thinking about that, trying to think of a comparison, it's kind of like all those like Hallmark and Lifetime movie Christmas movies where it's like, oh, girl goes to Christmas town and meets a guy or a guy meets a guy, girl meets a girl, whatever it might be. And they all, it's like, and it's like, then oh, you're watching Lifetime channel, right? <laughs> yeah. And, but it's like, but when you're putting your personal, when you're putting your personal experience in there, then all of a sudden you get a Christmas movie like National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. And yeah. it's like, well, that one's on every single Christmas, and everyone absolutely loves it. So absolutely, yeah, I see it every year. Yeah, but it, but it's just the fact that, and it kind of goes with music as well. Where it's like when you really put yourself personally into it, you put it into your art, and people are going to appreciate it because it's all about the emotional connection that those people make with what you are trying to describe from your own yeah. personal life. And that's why so many people, when it comes to not only singing or just or in television, movies, writing, whatever books, whatever it might be, when people put their own personalities and put their personal lives into it. And maybe, you know, remove some of the names, change some of the names so that people don't get, you know, too miffed about it if there's yeah. a negative story or something like that. Yeah. But putting that authenticity in there is going to allow people to really relate to it on such a deeper level that they're going to have an appreciation for it that's really going to hit them in their heart. And they're not they're going to want to either if it's a movie, watch it every single year around that same time. If it's a song, listen to it over and over and over again and then tell their friends, hey, you got to listen to this song. And even if their friends aren't as big on it as them, they might see that person really enjoying it and then feel a connection that they weren't exactly going to have if they listen to it on their own. It's just a whole big thing that really gets people to connect not only with the artist, but connect even more within themselves. Yeah. 
Well, everybody is, you know, nobody's that different from anybody else. Everybody really has the same feeling. And, uh, you know, whether they want to cop to it or not, whether they're honest about it or not. It's like what I've, what I've always said, everybody's born to sing. A lot of us are taught not to. You know, they're afraid of it. You know, I know I, there was a vocal coach and there's a handful of good vocal coaches around. I mean, Seth Riggs is one of those guys. He really deals with the instrument itself. But this uh, Laura, Laura Hart was her name and she passed away. But she was more of a psychologist. She'd say, all right, what's the song? What does the song mean? How do you how do you feel about the song? Are, do these lyrics mean anything to you? Well, if they do, put it in your vocal. You know, she said, and if, and if you're afraid to do that, let's work on that. So, so she's kind of working on making sure that the that the instrument is a, is a clear path from heaven, where the stuff all comes from, or art, the art you know planet where the stuff all comes from, and can come through you without getting caught. And I mean, when I was, I mean, here's a here's a real out one. But when I was younger, I was actually wiped out on acid sitting at a, on the right by a right by a creek in Marin County. Nobody around. It was just the woods and everything like that. And I was starting to go, you know, at the time when I was singing, I didn't have much range. And then I was, and I was just thinking about it. I was like listening to the birds singing and I went, these birds don't have a break. There's, they just go right from there all the way up. And there's no, it's almost every human voice has a break, a little spot where it's really hard to get around it. You got to either do it in full voice or falsetto or whatever. And I went, I, they, and listen to the range these things have. And I'm getting, you know, I'm getting so high I could go duck hunting with a fork. You know, what I mean, it's really <laughs> slamming pretty hard. And I just realized, I said, why can't I sing up there? And then, I, and then, some part of me went, because when you were young, a young kid, a young boy, somebody said that part of your voice is a girl's voice. And I went, oh, it's a sex hang-up. <laughs> gone i gained that just that one day i gained you know it's not a bad one i've heard a lot worse ones but i was like when little kids it's a girl's voice well i'm not gonna do it boom and then i've you know and it took this actual acid trip for me to go and listening to some birds for me to go oh well that's gone you know and I'm, you know right after that i had this falsetto which when i got to la and started doing vocal dates and stuff like that it made me it bought me my first house doing you know using that part of my voice which i didn't have up until i figured out i did have it i just didn't use it you know so i mean a lot of a lot of people are that way now i got a question you hear i, I listen to uh you have satellite radio at all um i i i don't because i whenever i listen to stuff i always listen to stuff that i find so i'm always searching for this stuff online I know that my dad just bought a brand new truck. He got it on there. He's super excited about satellite radio. So he's got so well, many different a, things loaded. You, you check it out. I think it's 36 or 37. It's just called Octane. Oh, oh yeah. I'm a, a, of- I'm a huge um, – because on, on a Facebook, there's this group that this one guy runs. His name is Joe Alfano. It's an Octane fan club. About 18,000 people on there. And so many people post on there about all this different stuff about the music Rankin. that's on there. I'm so You're honored. hearing some of the – I mean, I think some of the coolest drums and drummers and guitar players – slamming like crazy but this most of the singers are i can't understand them and i go you got a couple of years of doing that before you ain't gonna be able to do anything you know because i mean there's a certain point where you go hey, this guy's hurting his voice i mean you ever gone to a football game just got caught up in it and just started going run you know like just oh yeah do that for about two hours and then go home and try to sing <laughs> 
ain't gonna happen, you know. I mean, so I, I always wonder about that. These guys seem to be able to seem to be able to keep doing it year after year after year, and I just go, how how can you guys do that? I can't I can't even go to a football game and go, yeah, you know, because I don't want to hurt my pipes. You know what I mean? Well, from what I've actually found out, is there are certain techniques that they use in order to somewhat sometimes coat their throat so that when they do sing on that, when they do sing those, the, the sound still comes out the same, but it doesn't hurt their throat as much. Plus well, cool. I know there, I don't know there, I know there also is a vocal coach somewhere out there. I can't remember her name, but she really figured out a way to do those unclean vocals, those really deep unclean like scowls and screams that yeah. really just lets people do them but also makes their voices and their vocal cords trained so that it's not nearly as strenuous on them. So that's why they're able to do them for many different, for a long period cool. of time. Okay. Some you, of, just, you, just, you just answered a question that I've had for a long time because I love listening to the station, but after a while I hear in that, hearing that same kind of singing and, and, you know, I'll listen in if I can, if I can actually hear the lyrics, there's a lot of really cool lyrics on a lot of this stuff. And, uh, but boy, some guitar players that are through the roof. Awesome. And it, it, you know, 10 maybe 10 a little more than 10 years ago that was like metal but i think now the same guys that that played just thrash metal you know have 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 cooled their chops down to where they're they're able to play all that fast stuff if they want but it's still melodic somehow there's some great players on some of these records you know oh I yeah do it a lot <laughs> Love it. i thought for sure you'd know that one you'd you'd have that you you listen for a day you're gonna get satellite radio just to have that it's smoking mm -hmm. and i've never a lot of the bands i've never really heard heard that much but uh you know god smack and that's that's one from about 10 years ago there's a handful of really cool bands that i, I really like <laughs> so i oh, i could i could easily understand that and like one that i feel like you would like would be um alter bridge if you've ever heard of them who alter bridge oh yeah yeah they, they've been on that station a couple of times yeah because so, I, I saw them live right before the pandemic hit and I can't play guitar. I don't even understand exactly how a guitar works when it comes to actually playing it. I understand I understand the sounds and how different things work within it, but trying to actually play it, I can't figure it out. I still remember watching Mark Tremonti on stage, your lead guitarist. I forgot what publication. I think it was Kerrang! named him the best guitarist of the 2010s. Watching him play live, I'm like, I don't even understand how to play a guitar. But then there's what this guy is doing. I don't understand any of this. Like This is a whole different level, and the whole entire show... I was staring at his guitar, trying to figure out exactly how he was doing these things. Like the only time I saw Rush when I was watching Neil Peart drum, trying to figure out how in the heck are you doing all this stuff, man? It was yeah. just Neil mind blowing. Was, was a major piece of work. I, I love that band. Rush was was killing me. Uh, my friend Jason Chef, who, who was with Chicago, played bass and sang with Chicago for a good portion of the time I was there. Uh, he, he he does some work with a guitar player in Rush, and he's, he learns some of the Getty Lee parts and the and the vocal parts, and they play some of those tunes. I've gone, that must have been a that must have been a little serious woodshedding going on. He must have been practicing for a long time, you know. It's pretty nutty. Say, say with all the stuff that Rush did, just all the intricacies behind the music, there had to be so much practice going on there. And then seeing him play yeah. live, seeing him play all that to precision, I'm just sitting there thinking. How is this yeah, impossible? Well, practice makes perfect. You know, I mean, I know a lot, there's a lot of bands out there that I just, I mean, when I, right before the Sun's first album, when I was a kid, we practiced every day. We had three paying gigs in the year 1967, but I wrote a whole double album, all but one song. 
during that period of time when we rehearsed it, we got it together. We spent every day working it. We went to the shows. We play all kinds of gigs and stuff like that. But it was every day, you know, five, six days a week. We had a practice hall. We had the stuff set up. We just go to the practice hall. If I had to hitchhike to get there, that's the way it was. Uh, and and we just rehearsed all the time. And the thing about doing that, it's you know, it seems like it's an awful lot of work. Couldn't I just you know, why don't I just read a chart and I'll just play it live? No, no, no. We're putting this together. You know, I, I, together we're putting this together. It's not one guy doing it. It's like we're all doing it together. That's a whole other move than, than what a solo album's about. Oh, but it's, I know how to do it. You know, I was, I've always been kind of a band guy and that really, really helps. And, and with me, I would always stay, stay behind with after practice is over, most guys would go home and I'm sitting there jamming with two or the, two or three of the guys. Hey, we're just going to, I want them to play drums. <laughs> My drummer hated me playing his drum set, but that's how it worked. Yeah. But You're gone. I'm playing them. <laughs> but what really comes out of it is just that, that just the love and the effort and the consistency and just the enjoyability that you had behind making all this music has led you to, practice with the original band six days a week and then write a double album with only three paying gigs in that year. It's all of a sudden fast forward from 1967 to 2020 seeing where you are right now, that ethic and that love of the music and that love of what you're doing has led you to what you're doing today. Exactly. I mean, if you want to really be good, you got to work at it. And you know what I found out years ago, the better the musicians, the more rehearsal you need. You know, sometimes, well, hey, this guy's really good. He'll get it real quick. No, 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 no. We don't want that. That's not what we're looking for. What we're looking for is a guy who wants to get in with all the rest of us. He may be better than the rest of us, but when we're all rehearsing together, we're all the same. We're as, all as good as each other. That's just kind of the way it works, you know. And uh, it's kind of hard when you when you really are better than the next guy. But, you know, when you're rehearsing, you we got to make it all go like that. And that's what some of these, some of these bands, I, I listen to some of these bands, like I say, on Octane, I'm going, man, I can just, all, all I can do is just imagine a, a rehearsal room that these guys have lived in to get this good, you know? Oh, yeah. And it may have to be just the one producer playing the whole thing and their electric drums or something. But if they did, they figured out how to do it well. <laughs> but I mean, it, it usually sounds like some of these bands, some of these sections that they have are just so musically cool. It's like, oh, God, dig this. You know, I'm i it knocks me out to hear that kind of stuff. I, I like all of it. You know, I'm almost like my my doctor. You know, I'll go to a mosh pit one day and go check out Beethoven the next. It's all there's something cool about all of it. Yeah, and I think that's a great way to close this out, this podcast, this conversation with this when it comes to the people that are listening to this, whether it's people that love your music or people that are loving the conversation based off of everything we're talking about with the intricacies behind music with the better musician, the more rehearsal that's needed and the more practice that's needed because it's just going to make you so much better, make you so much more perfected within your own craft to make that art. So yeah, then you get to a level where all of a sudden you're on Bill's level or whichever way he's going to be on the video. I don't know which way anymore. So I'm just going to point both ways. <laughs> yeah. Right. I hear you. Yeah. I mean, uh, it, you just, the more you do something, the better off you get at it. And, you know, and I was, I was thought, you know, playing, singing, writing, it's all a craft. Putting strings on the guitar is part of the craft. It's the same, you know, it's the same thing as singing, singing on a, on an album. 
it's all part of the same thing. And it, it's, it's just, you get to, you know, when I, when I grew up really, when I was just first started playing with the sons back in the day, when I was relatively young, I just realized that if you do this a lot, you have a better chance of art coming through you. If you, if you really approach your craft and you do, you spend a lot of time doing it, you know, it can, it can seem a little boring at some level, but if you do it and you spend a lot of time doing it, there's more chance for art to come through you. Spend time on the craft and art art's going to happen. It's just the way it works. That, that is the perfect motto to become, bring this to a close. So Bill, I want to thank you for being on the podcast. This was something that was absolutely incredible talking through all nice, this different sort of music uh, tendencies and music ideas with you going through your album, being able to listen to it, listening to reason to believe and really getting honestly amped up by it because of the way that it was written, the power in your vocals, the energy behind it really did stand out. And I'm looking forward to telling people about this. And honestly, I'm looking forward to see what my dad's reaction is going to be to this podcast. Not only when I tell him that it happened, but also when he actually watches it during one of his late night, uh, YouTube binge sessions, play the music for him. See what he thinks. Oh, I will. I, I might yeah. do that tomorrow as well. Just be like, got hey, what do you I think got of a this? feeling he might, he might go, whoa, now we're talking business. You know I, mean? I feel like he's going to do just that. And I'm going to have to uh, make sure I let you know what he thinks just because he might just be like, whoa, wait, what, what, what is this? Whoa, 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 whoa. Just kind of get some of that, <laughs> that kind of motive in there. I'm going to have to record that's, a little video. and send That's it to what you. we want to see is that kind of reaction. Whoa, that's what, what yeah. the fuck is this shit? <laughs> That is what we want to see. And for everyone listening, when it comes to finding Bill online, when it comes to finding where you can follow all the stuff, where you can listen to all his music, stream all the stuff, just take a look at the description in the podcast, whether on YouTube, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Play, iHeartRadio. I'm going to have all the links there for you guys. So it's going to be super easy to find it. And when these... Uh, song comes out on January 1st. That is reason to believe January 1st, 2020. You're going to start out 2020, right? You know, let's, let's take 2020, put it in the back burner. Let's go to 2021 and start out. Right. So listen to reason to believe when it comes out, trust me. on awesome. this. It's going to start the year out the best way possible. Thank you so much, Kevin. You're a, you're a scholar and a gentleman, or at least a, one of the hang man you're good hang it's great talking to you it was great talking to you too bill like i said singer songwriter musician whatever it might be and of course the last part about it all around good guy hey don't forget billchamplin.com forward slash shop and you can uh you can pre-order the record oh if, i'm putting that like, link in there if as you well. like cds oh i'm putting that link in there as well i put i put as many links i can in there that relate to it so you're i awesome. got you covered cool man thank you buddy i'll all talk right. at you Thank you, Bill. And I never like to end these with a goodbye because it seems like, you know, it'd be the last time we'd ever talk. And I don't want that. I enjoyed talking to you so much. I'd love to do this again sometime, whether on the podcast again or hopefully COVID-19 ends, get back on the road, maybe do this in person because that would be freaking awesome. So I don't want to end this with a goodbye. So I'm going to end this with something I always end this with. See you later. <laughs> See you for sure. Be good. Whoa, 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 folks. That's my review with Bill Champlin. And remember, his single reason to believe is coming out on january 1st living for love the album is coming out in 2021 and god this was such an incredible conversation dad i hope you really enjoyed this one because this one was fun and i can't wait to be able to talk to bill again about music whether it's in person whether it's over the podcast once again this one was so much fun to do and I loved everything we talked about music. So please, please, please listen to this again if you guys want to really get in depth with the art of music and hear all of Bill's fun stories because they were fantastic. 
on that note, that's going to be it for me today, guys. Thank you for watching and listening to the Chord Progression Podcast. But the MSODD rocks where rock and metal thrive. My name is Kevin. Happy New Year, everybody. And you guys know how I end every single one of these episodes with a big, healthy, and hearty. See ya!